Hello, friends. John Eldridge here, and welcome to the Ransom Tart Podcast. I frankly would be really surprised if you're tuning in to us on December 26th. We load these on Mondays, and they run for a week, and then we try and refresh the new one the following Monday. But I'm thinking the day after Christmas, I hope you're resting. I hope that you're sated. I hope that you're filled with joy. My hunch is you're also probably exhausted, maybe even somewhat a little disappointed. Not because Christmas is bad or disappointing, but I just find every year that Christmas awakens in me longings for eternity. I just want it to go on. I just want the joy, the love, the wonder, all of it to go on. And I find that no matter how good it is, there's just an ache in my heart for more. So here's what we're going to do this week. We're going to play one last piece from Beautiful Outlaw here at the end of the year. And this is from chapter 13 on loving Jesus. And the reason I share this is all of those longings, all of our desires, all that was wonderful yesterday and on Christmas Eve and all that that maybe wasn't satisfying, all of that is met in Jesus Christ and nothing works apart from him. So the thought and the devotion this week is loving Jesus and allow him to come close to us. Loving Jesus. Friends, this is not simply a nicer view of Jesus. This is not merely a more winsome Christ or a smattering of fresh insights. This is not confetti, lovely while it falls, soon to be swept away. Jesus is our life. We need Jesus like we need oxygen, like we need water, like the branch needs the vine. Jesus is not merely a figure for devotions. He is the missing essence of your existence. Whether we know it or not, we are desperate for Jesus. What if you could have Jesus the way Peter and John had him, the way Mary and Lazarus did? I said at the outset of this book that to have Jesus, really have him, is to have the greatest treasure in all worlds. To have his life, joy, love, and presence cannot be compared. To know him as he is, is to come home. A true knowledge of Jesus is our greatest need and our greatest happiness. The purpose of your being here on this planet at this moment in time comes down to three things. One, to love Jesus with all that is within you. This is the first and greatest command. Everything else flows from here. Two, to share your daily life with him. Let him be himself with you on the beach at supper, along the road, just as the disciples did. And three, to allow his life to fill yours, to heal and express itself through yours. There is no other way you can hope to live as he did and show him to others. Love Jesus, let him be himself with you, and allow his life to permeate yours. The fruit of this will be breathtaking. Now for the best news you will ever receive. Oh, how I wish this book had a soundtrack because the orchestra would resound here with a crash and then go utterly silent as you hear these next words. You get to. You get to. 
You are meant to have this Jesus more than you have each new day, more than you have your next breath. For heaven's sakes, he is your next day. He is your next breath. You are meant to share life with him, not just a glimpse now and then at church, not just a rare sighting, and you are meant to live his life. The purpose of his life, death, and resurrection was to ransom you from your sin, deliver you from the clutches of evil, restore you to God so that his personality and his life could heal and fill your personality, your humanity, and your life. This is the reason he came. Anything else is religion. Sadly, for too many people, the Christ they know is too religious to love, too distant to experience, and too rigid to be a source of life. It explains the abject poverty of the church. But hear this. Jesus hasn't changed one bit. He is still quite himself. This is still how he acts. The scriptures assure us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. This is how he presented himself. This is who he is. God is better than we thought, much better than we feared, better even than we dared to believe. Make a practice of loving Jesus. So, the best thing you can do at this point is simply begin to love Jesus. Just love him. It will open up your heart and soul to experiencing him and to receiving his life. Just begin to make a practice of loving Jesus. As I'm driving in my car, I'll simply tell him, I love you. Not once, like a sneeze, but over and over again, I love you, I love you, I love you. It turns my whole being toward him in love. When I wake up and the sunshine is pouring through the window, I'll say, I love you. I'll look at a photograph of some fond memory or some beautiful place, and I'll say, I love you. A breeze will caress my face ever so gently, and I'll turn into it and say, I love you. Anytime something makes me laugh, when I see a chipmunk or a wave, when I enjoy a movie, I love you, I love you, I love you. Find a few worship songs that lift your heart. Linger with them. Play them over and over and simply tell Jesus you love him. Put them on your iPod. Play them in your car. The more you practice this, the richer it becomes. When you smell coffee in the morning, say, Jesus, I love you. When something makes you smile over a great bowl of noodles, when you read a passage in a book that moves you or answers a question, taking a hot bath, watching your children play, walking by a florist shop, when someone is kind, after the rain makes the city lights glisten in the streets downtown, or when you hear a piece of music you love, say, Jesus, I love you. I love you. I love you. This doesn't need to be complicated. Francis of Assisi was called the second Christ because his life was so totally given over to expressing the life of Jesus. What can we learn from this man devoted like no other? Quote, As St. Francis did not love humanity but men, so he did not love Christianity but Christ, wrote Chesterton. Wow, just let that sink in. Francis didn't fall in love with church 
he fell in love with Jesus. His religion was not a thing like a theory, but a thing like a love affair. Who even remembers him for that? If people know him now, it's only as the statue in the garden of the friar with the birds and bunnies. He's been made a cartoon by the religious fog, just as it happened to Jesus. Which brings me back to something essential for loving Jesus, for making your faith more like a love affair. You are going to have to break with the religious. If you want Jesus, you're going to have to end the relationship with the religious glaze. To begin with, and to help you make a simple practice of loving Jesus, you will find it immensely helpful to be released from false reverence. It was time for supper. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested. You will never wash my feet. Jesus replied, Unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. From John chapter 13. This is a marvelous story. Peter looks Jesus in the face and says, No? You've got to love his conviction. Very reverent. Only it's the wrong application. Peter tries to draw the line at Jesus' washing his feet, acting out of good intentions from a sincere respect of his master. You learn something important about Jesus when he doesn't allow that line to be drawn. He washes his feet anyway. Jesus is so iconoclastic. He continues to shatter our stained-glass views of him. But this motive, reverence for God, this is a slippery one. This lets in a great deal of the clutter that actually gets between us and God because it seems like the proper thing to do. For example, many Catholics find Mary a more approachable figure, Because Jesus has been lifted so far into the heavens, he seems altogether gone, too holy to speak to, and honestly, a bit severe. So they pray to Mary to approach Jesus on their behalf. But when the man with leprosy ran up to him, Jesus didn't insist that he come through a mediator. He never did with anyone. This battle with false reverence is not a Catholic thing. The morning prayer in the Anglican Episcopal Book of Common Prayer begins with, Almighty God and Everlasting Father, a beautiful expression and one that I've used many times myself, but very different from the one that Jesus gave us. Abba, Daddy. Papa, I come to you this morning has a totally different feel than Almighty God and Everlasting Father. Even if you don't start out that way, Addressing God with a coat-and-tie formality you would never have wanted between you and your dad will end up starching the relationship. Papa is what Jesus gave us. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out Abba, Father, 
from Romans 8 and Galatians 4. In many Protestant circles, Jesus is referred to as the Good Lord, a phrase that sounds pious, but it's a marshmallow phrase, sweet, spongy, and void of personality, very white robe and sandals. Jesus never used that term. None of the disciples did. What would happen to your marriage if you only called your wife the good woman? Ladies, what would become of your relationship if your husband insisted that you address him as only good sir? How would the dynamics of your friendships change if you were required to no longer use their first name, but rather the more formal Mr. Smith, Miss Jones? This is how the religious cleverly separates us from Jesus. When Saul encounters the risen and ascended Lord on the road to Damascus, he asks him, Who are you? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, Acts 9.5. My name is Jesus. That's pretty straightforward. Not Mr. Christ. We're the ones who keep inserting respectable gold-leafed expressions such as the Good Lord, the Savior, the All-Glorious One, feeling better for offering the reverence but not realizing it is religious talk, not the sort of thing Jesus liked very much. Now, I realize I'm challenging things that good people hold sacred. The point is not the words. The point is the fruit, their effect. Stained glass language reflects a view of what Jesus is like. It shapes our perceptions of him and therefore our experience of him. Whatever the term may be, just ask yourself, does this sound like his actual personality? Does this capture his playfulness, infuriating the Pharisees, his humanity, generosity, and scandalous freedom? Does this sound like the Jesus at Cana, at dinner with sinners, on the beach with the boys? Or does the phrase conjure a more religious view of Jesus? The original writers of the Bible did not use thee and thou, didn't even use a capital H when referring to him. We added these later as an act of reverence, along with red ink, to set apart the words of Jesus. But the effect is to create a very false impression, a best-to-keep-our-distance piety. These ways of speaking about Jesus perpetuate distorted views of his personality, and they keep Jesus at a distance, the polar opposite of the intimacy his entire life was committed to. It makes it hard to love him. But I can feel the hair rising on the back of the religious spirit even now. Careful, friends, don't let that false piety distort your mood here. This stuff actually gets in the way of loving Jesus. Listen. You can honor him, respect him, insist that others do, and never actually love Jesus. That is not what he wanted. False reverence is a choice veil of the religious fog. It will bring a shroud between your heart and his. Speaking of veils, the moment Jesus died on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Mark fifteen thirty-eight. This is an enormously symbolic and staggering event. That curtain existed to separate the rest of the temple from the place called the Holy of Holies. The presence of God dwelt in that forbidden chamber while the faithful were kept out. 
It was a very clear message. God was too holy for us to approach. The Jews didn't even dare utter his name. But we do. We're on a first-name basis. Because Jesus changed everything. Through his cross, he paid for our sins, cleansed us, brought us out of the dungeons of the evil one, and brought us back to his Abba. Jesus established a whole new way of relating to God. He often reclined at meals with people. He stopped along the road to chat. He touched them, embraced them. He called them by name, and they him. Jesus is always closing the distance. The encounters in the Gospels are intimate. My goodness, the whole incarnation is intimate. Emmanuel, God with us. Why do we feel we must help Jesus set that mistake right by pushing him off a bit with reverent language and lofty tones? I understand that much of it is done with good intention by men and women who want to honor Christ, just like Peter. But the irony is, this isn't how God chose to relate to us. When Jesus died, that most holiest of curtains was ripped in half, torn top to bottom. And who was it that did that? Surely not the priests. It was God himself. He took that veil and ripped it in two. So why do we insist on stitching it back up? A whole lot of what passes for worship, sacrament, and instruction in Christian circles is sewing lessons. Hanging that veil again, done in the same spirit that says, God is too holy for us to approach. I've read it countless places written by popular theologians. I've heard it said many times from the pulpit. We must not be too familiar with God. Do not presume to come too close. Said who? They are trying to recreate the Holy of Holies in the name of reverence. Except it was God who ripped that curtain forever with his own two hands. That is clearly over. Understanding this truth will open up new realms for you in relating to Jesus and enable your heart to love him. Think of the woman whose tears poured over Jesus' feet, wiping them with her hair, kissing them. Jesus loved that moment. John was leaning on his chest during the Last Supper. Jesus reached out to touch the leper, the blind man. He held children in his lap intimate, intimate, intimate. Do you recall the parable he told about the prodigal son? It says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. From Luke 15. Jesus is explaining how God wants to relate to us. By using the phrase, threw his arms around him and kissed him, he meant that He threw his arms around him and kissed him. Does this sound like the hymns sung, the prayers said, the way God is approached in your church? I hope so. Peter learned his lesson, by the way. A week or two after the foot washing, following the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus appears on the shore just across from where the boys are fishing. He acts like a guy out for a stroll, asks if they've had any luck. Suggests they try one more spot and reproduces that catch that caught them all in the beginning. Watch how Peter responds this time. 
The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord! As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord! He wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. John 21, verse 7. Peter is a hundred yards offshore. That's about three city blocks. A long way to swim, especially in a full-length robe. It would be like trying to swim wrapped in a bedsheet. Peter doesn't care. He doesn't wait for the boat, forgets about the fish, and as quick as you can say, Jack, be nimble, he hits the water, swimming, thrashing, gasping for air, and then stumbling ashore fast as he can to get to Jesus. Do you think he then drew another line in the sand? Hello, sir, Mr. Christ, may I approach? Peter is a passionate, emotional, impulsive guy. He just swam a hundred yards in his bathrobe. I'll bet dollars to donuts. He ran right up to Jesus, sopping wet as the laundry from the washer, and hugged him, soaking the risen Lord. If Peter didn't do it, you know Jesus did, adding his tears of joy to the wet embrace. Beautiful. That's the way to do it, friends. Just begin to make a practice of loving Jesus. Relate to him as you see his friends did in the Gospels. Well, this concludes our final podcast for 2011, and it will also conclude the podcasting we've been doing on Beautiful Outlaw. If you haven't had a chance to read the book yet, oh, please, 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 it will, it will bless you so deeply. Get it. And if you have, you know how desperately the world needs it. And part of our passion as we go into 2012 is bringing Jesus, bringing the real Jesus to the world. And we'd love to have you be a part of that. So come and join us. If you haven't stopped by the website at beautifuloutlaw.net, please do. There's just some terrific video there for you to enjoy. And, And bottom line, to find Jesus more deeply here in the coming year. Thanks for being our friends. And Happy New Year.